Welcome to Sundays with Montrose Bible Church. We're glad you're here to join us in a study of God's Word. Uh, my name is Benjamin Schaefer, and I have the uh, privilege and the great weight to bring uh, God's Word this morning. Uh, but before we begin, I um, ask that you bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, you are a gracious and good God. Um, we just thank you and praise you for that. We praise you for all you are. Um, Lord, I pray that this morning you would be uh, working, that you would help me speak clearly. Um, I pray that no matter what would happen, your spirit would be working. Um, I pray that we would see your truths that are in your scripture, uh, that would be clear to us. I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to it. I pray that you would be glorified above all else in this church and in our lives. These things pray in son's name. Amen. Being raised in the church and having been taught the scriptures for as long as we can remember means that we can recite the Christmas story word for word. We know every detail that could possibly have the smallest theological significance. And to hear these same things again can feel often repetitive and boring almost. And it can take a hard kick to wow us or it would cause us to become awestruck. And you may have heard these years and years and years, but don't let them become lost on you. As we look at the word this morning, I pray that the Holy Spirit would be opening our eyes, keeping us awake, and keeping us alert. And, to, and I pray that the Holy Spirit would be showing us his truths in his word. And our text this morning is Psalm 24. So I invite you to turn there and follow along as I read. Psalm 24, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. The hardest part when looking at a psalm is trying to connect the seemingly hodgepodge of ideas that are found there. At first glance, we often won't see a consistent flow from verse to verse. But the Psalms aren't a collection of hodgepodge ideas, but they're very intentional with what they say. And this Psalm is no different. This Psalm is logical and it's coherent and it follows a train of thought that builds upon itself. It starts with verses 1 and 2 as the base. And once you understand the ideas found there, you can move on to the ideas in verses 3 through 6. And grasping both those sections, you can get the significance of verses 7 through 10. So, let's take a look at verses 1 and 2, and we'll see what the groundwork for the whole of the psalm is. Verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, 
the world, and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So we come to the fundamental truth that the whole psalm is based on. And that's the first truth we're going to look at this morning. Truth number one. The Lord owns absolutely everything. Verse one is a declaration of that ownership. And the language used to say that is all-encompassing. When David wrote this psalm, he says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, then proceeds to repeat himself almost word for word by saying, The world is the Lord's and everything that dwells therein. He doesn't leave anything out. There's nothing in this world that doesn't belong to God, and the reason can be found in verse 2. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Notice the words founded and established, which imply more than just the act of creation. Not only did God begin the earth, but he holds it together firmly and keeps it going. And if you look at the Hebrew for the words founded and established, you'll see that they mean to establish, found, fix, or to be firm. The very first words of scripture tell us that God made the earth. So if you look at the book of Genesis, the first verse, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It cannot be any clearer than that. The earth is the Lord's because he began it. And if you take a look at the book of Job, you'll see what the Lord establishing the earth looks like. So Job 38, 4 through 11 Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with its doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far you shall come, and no further, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. That is why the Lord alone has the right to the world. Because he not only began it, but he founded it upon the seas, and established it upon the rivers. That is the most magnificent passage ever. He tells creation, Thus far, and no further. And that truth brings us to our first question. Question number one. Since the earth is the Lord's, who can approach him? Look at verse three of this morning's passage. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? So after we recognize the ownership that God has over the world, the next question is, who can stand in the holy place of such a being And who can approach him? It is not as if you can remain safely off and be all right. We know from scripture that we have to come to him because he's the only one with the words of eternal life, John 6, 68, and we need eternal life. In his presence, there is life, and outside of his presence, there's only death, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. So once again, who can approach the one tells the ocean thus far and no further look at verse three through six that's where we will find our answer who shall ascend the hill of the lord and who shall stand in his holy place he who has clean hands and a pure heart 
who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So the one who can approach God must have clean hands and a pure heart. It is both external and internal. Most of us, if not all of us, would have been disqualified by the phrase, does not swear deceitfully. However, all of us are definitely disqualified by the fact that what is needed is absolute cleanliness and purity. Psalm 15 not only asks the same questions and echoes the same answers as our passage, but it builds upon the ideas of what is needed to approach him. So I invite you to turn there. Psalm 15. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent and who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. It is a blameless life and a truthful heart that is needed. And if you do walk blamelessly and have a truthful heart, the psalm says that you receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of your salvation. And such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. But who here has a blameless life and a truthful heart? None of us do, and it's the same with the rest of humanity. Therefore, no one can ascend the hill of the Lord. No one can stand in his holy place. We do not have clean hands, do not have pure hearts, and cannot receive the blessing and righteousness from the Lord needed to approach him. We are filthy with sin and deceit. And here's where we reach a problem and our second truth. Truth number two. Only clean people can approach him, but only God is clean. God is the only one with a clean Uh, clean hands, and a pure heart. But this is not a new concept, and you've been taught it to its fullest. You guys know this. So I'll only touch on it very, very briefly here. I'll just read two passages. The first one is Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10. That says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, According to the fruit of his deeds. Our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately sick, so much so that only the Lord knows its depths, and it must grieve him terribly, because he knows and sees such evil in us, and he's not evil but good. Mark ten, eighteen. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. God is good. And we are not. We are deceitful above all things and desperately sick, not worthy of the blessing and righteousness that he can give, and so we cannot approach the creator of the world. However, in one sense, you don't need to worry about approaching the creator of the world, because if you look in verses 7 through 10, he's coming to us. And that's our third truth. The king of glory is coming. So look at verses 7 through 10. 
Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. At last we come to it. We come to what the rest of the psalm is building towards. Verses 1 through 6 are essentially a resume. And the psalm is written so that you get the resume, then are told, oh, by the way, the one who you just read about, he's coming and you got to get ready. And we see the call to the gates in verses 7 and 9 to get ready. Verse 7, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Verse 9, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. There are two elements to this call. There is a physical one and a spiritual one. The physical one is literally just to lift up the gates. At the time this was written, David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem. And at the same time, Jerusalem probably had a portcullis. And a portcullis is just a gate made of bars that's raised and lowered in place. So when David says, lift up your heads, O gates, he's literally saying, just lift up the portcullis. And let there be nothing to hinder the entrance of the king. But in the spiritual element of the call, David is calling the city to make itself fit to receive its king. And by calling the city, he's calling everyone in the city to make themselves fit and ready to receive the king. He's saying, arouse yourselves, clean up, and get ready. Just like us, when we have people coming to our houses, we clean up, we put everything in order, and we stress about it. And we put in more stress to the cleaning and putting in order when someone that is coming is of more importance and we value them more. And if you read these verses, you can see that David values this person and sees the worth of this person. Reading these verses, you can hardly read it in a monotone way because you feel the excitement. And we see that the reason for the excitement is that the king of glory is coming. So like the city gates, we have to ask the question, who is the king of glory? Let us first look at the title before we get into who it is. What does it mean to be king of glory? We know what a king is, so we don't need to define that. But what about the word glory? It's more abstract. And synonyms for glory include magnificence, splendor, beauty, wonder, grandeur, and brilliance. So to be king of glory is to be a king of magnificence, splendor, beauty, wonder, grandeur, and brilliance. And out of all those synonyms, one particular sticks out, and that's the one wonder. Turn with me to Isaiah 9, uh, verse 6. That says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, And the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. I once had the opportunity to have this passage taught to me by a Messianic Jew. And he told us that my passage, that this passage in our English Bibles do us a disservice. In Hebrew, there are five names given and not four. The name Wonderful is added. That's actually a noun and not an adjective. So instead of it being wonderful counselor, it's wonderful counselor. 
So one of the names given to the Messiah will be wonderful. So on one side, you have the king of glory or the king of wonder. On the other, you have the name wonderful. So we're just starting to see hints of who the text is referring to. And if you take a look at verses 8 and 10, you'll see more hints. Verse 8. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Verse 10. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. As you're looking to the answer to the question, who is this king of glory? Pay attention to the titles that the psalmist uses for the Lord. He uses strong and mighty and mighty in battle, which are war terms. They're terms given to someone who has fought long and hard in many battles. And if you read through scripture, just at a brief glance, you'll see that God has fought many battles and has won every one of them. God slayed the gods of Egypt and has hurled giant hailstones down on his enemies. So God is worthy and has proven himself to be strong and mighty and mighty in battle. He's proven it many, many times over. And it's something that the whole Godhead has proven. So it's no surprise that when you look in the book of Joshua, you specifically see the person of Christ arrayed as one for battle. So Joshua chapter 5 Verse 13 through 15. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. Behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? He said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped him and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now at first, you might think that this is a high angel of some kind and not Christ. But I ask you to look again and see that there are at least three reasons why this has to be Christ. The first reason is that if you look at verse 14, it says that Joshua fell on his face and worshipped him, and he allowed Joshua to do so. Angels don't do that. Angels know that God alone is worthy of worship, and so they do not allow any of it to come to them, and they stop it as soon as it starts. The second reason is that Joshua is told to take his sandals off, for the place he is standing is holy. This mirrors what God tells Moses to do when he's in front of the burning bush. And again, angels don't say, take off your shoes. Because they know that in front of them is not directly holy because they are not holy like the Lord is holy. The third reason is that it is only the second person of the Trinity who appears in the flesh. Therefore, since this is God in the flesh, it must be the person of Christ with drawn sword here in the book of Joshua. So Christ, because he is part of the Godhead, has fought many battles and has won them and is Uh, worthy of those titles but the most impressive battle ever fought by him is in the book of hebrews that's hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 that says this since therefore the children share in flesh and blood he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil so that is how we know that christ is deserving of these titles and that these titles refer to Jesus. 
He has proven himself to be strong and mighty and mighty in battle. That is one of the reasons we know that our fourth truth is true. Our fourth truth is this. Jesus is the king of glory. And if you keep going in the psalm, you will again see Christ proven to be king of glory. Read again verse 10. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. But how do we know that when this verse says the Lord of hosts, it is referring to the person of Christ? We have to be good stewards of scripture and not just toss everything we feel like towards Christ. But we have to be able to prove with scripture that the title Lord of hosts can apply to Jesus. That title applies to the whole of the Trinity, but how specifically to Christ here in Psalm 24? To answer this question, we must look to other places in the Bible to see if this title is ascribed to or taken by Christ. So look at the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 37, 16. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Note, Isaiah says it is the Lord of hosts who is the one who made heaven and earth. Now turn to the Gospel of John. John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So who was it that made heaven and earth? It was the Lord of hosts who made heaven and earth. And who is it that all things were made through, and without whom nothing was made that was made? The Word is the one who all things were made through, and without whom nothing was made that was made. Then who is the word? We know that the word is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is the Lord of hosts and therefore is the king of glory. And at the time this psalm was written, the king of glory was actively coming through the gates with the entrance of the ark. If you jump forward a thousand years, you'll see again the king of glory coming through the gates on Palm Sunday. So turn to Matthew 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. You don't even understand the power and significance of that passage. Like, first time I read it, completely went over me. Read it second time. And then you notice that the crowd says, Who is this? James Boyce, in his commentary, puts what I mean into words. 
He says this, the ancient rabbinical sources tell us that in Jewish liturgy, Psalm 24 was always used in worship on the first day of the week. The first day of the week is our Sunday. So putting these facts together, we may assume that these were the words being recited by the temple priests at the very time the Lord Jesus Christ mounted a donkey and ascended the rocky approach to Jerusalem. So as Christ is coming through the doors, through the gates, not only are the temple priests reciting this very psalm, they're saying, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. They're saying, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. But then the crowd says, who is this? And if only they had stepped for a moment into the temple, they'd have heard that it is the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. They would have heard that it is the Lord of hosts. They would have heard that it is the king of glory coming through their gates. So the importance and worth of Jesus Christ has been attested to time and time again, from his birth to his death. He is the king of glory. And now that you know, what are you going to do with that? You know, so you have to do something. If you look at our psalm, you see that the only response is to lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. That is the only correct response. We must clear away all of our stuff, all the stuff that will hinder him, and open up to receive him. We have to lay aside every weight and sin that entangles us so easily. And we have to make ourselves ready. And just think what he could do with your life if you did. If you did open up, what wonders he could work through you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you and praise you for all that you are. Lord, we thank you that you are the king of glory, that you did come. Lord, we thank you for just the wonders of your word and how it connects. Lord, we pray that we would open up, that we would run after you, that we would allow you to change our lives. Lord, we pray that you would have your way with us and that you would receive all the glory and all the honor. These things are praying in Son's name. Amen. We trust you were challenged by the word of the Lord and invite you to join us again. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry in Montrose, come worship with us at 9.30 every Sunday along Lake Avenue.